My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Imagine that you're a girl growing up in a loving family, and at around age 12 or so, you're diagnosed with a condition that leads you to feel pretty self-conscious. And then one day, you discover masturbation, an orgasm, a little bit of bliss in what can feel like a dark world. And then you discover porn, and later sex, and gradually, getting off becomes your everything. Maybe you didn't even have to imagine this. Maybe this sounds kind of like a summary of your own experience. Chances are you haven't heard many speak about this stuff, though, unless that is you are familiar with Erica Garza's work. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so thrilled to welcome Erica back for her second appearance on the show. She's an essayist with work appearing in The Cut, Salon, Narratively, Good Housekeeping, The Los Angeles Review, and more. And she's the author of the super poignant memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. If you're tuning in for the first time, an extra special welcome. Thank you for being here. I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes, where you can also leave a simple review, and you can follow Girl Boner on Spotify as well. For occasional Girl Boner updates by email, sign up at augustmclaughlin.com. You can also find me and the Girl Boner community online at facebook.com forward slash my girl boner. Erica, I loved your book. I already was such a fan, but when I read it, I just kept thinking this is so important and so beautifully told. Congratulations. Thank and you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So you talk in your book a lot about shame. And you write, at 33 years old, at 24, even at 12, it was impossible for me to think about sexual pleasure without immediately feeling shame. Looking back, what was the first time that you recognized it as shame? The first time that I masturbated and experienced an orgasm, I remember feeling pleasure for, I mean, it was pleasure the whole time I was masturbating, but the orgasm itself was such a blissful moment and was full of exhilaration. But right after that, it was almost like a come down. I felt tremendous shame. I'd never heard anybody talk about sex or let alone masturbation. And I had no idea what I was experiencing. I grew up in a Catholic household, Latino parents, nobody ever talked about sex. And I didn't even really hear about it at school. So it was just shrouded with a lot of secrecy and mystery. And I just figured, because nobody was talking about it, that I must be doing something wrong. And it was really hard after that to separate those two feelings. Um, Not long after that, I started watching a lot of porn and, you know, nobody was talking about porn. So that also had a lot to do with shame. And I never 
knew how to separate pleasure from shame as I went forward and with my sexuality. Do you recall how you came upon porn the first time? Were you just Googling questions or did you hear that porn was a thing or how did you find it? My first experience of it was really mild stuff on Cinemax late at night. Um, so nothing outrageous as you would come across. A lot of kids now have access to you know streaming porn on the web, so they might come across something really hardcore. But my experience of it was really softcore stuff. And it was all really exciting, and I watched it a lot. And as my interest in it um, grew, the technology that was available only became more sophisticated as well. So my desire for it was always met with more in excess. So you were diagnosed with scoliosis at 12. Were you already experiencing you know, shame around your sexuality and all of that, or did that kind of follow? I had already been experiencing, based on the silence around sex, I did feel like I was doing something wrong. But when I started to use it to escape from all the worry and stress that I had around the scoliosis, because I was doing it so much more, then yeah, the shame was just confounded in that. And for anyone who's not familiar, who hasn't read your book, could you speak to how the scoliosis was impacting your sense of self? What was it? What was happening for you then at that time? I basically wanted to hide. You know, I was really scared of people judging me, of people making fun of me, and they did end up. I started getting bullied a lot at school, and the only way that I felt that I could escape from these feelings of insecurity and, you know, self-consciousness was to just watch a lot of porn and masturbate a lot because it was really effective for me to just kind of quiet my mind. Were they harassing you because you had like a visible brace or was it the curvature? What was the thing they were picking up? I had a visible for? brace, but it was also because I withdrew a lot. So I became mm -hmm. a pretty easy target. I think kids can kind of pick up on when other kids are feeling really insecure or scared or shy. And sometimes kids won't be very nice. You know, they'll find that as an opportunity to to pick on them more. So when did it progress? It sounds like it was it was gradual and the threshold kind of kept increasing, which happens with addiction. So you, like you said, the technology kept changing. All of these things were becoming more intense and your appetite was probably increasing as well. At what point did it start to feel like it was really detracting from your whole life? In high school, it felt like, well, in high school, not so much the early years because I didn't have that much porn available to me. You know, streaming porn wasn't available. It was more like downloading pictures and chat rooms. But when streaming porn sites became available, that's when I really felt like I had instant access whenever I wanted it, any hour of the day and whatever I wanted to see, even things I didn't even think to want. All of a sudden, I had all of this new material to look at. And it was really enticing and engaging and hard to stay away from. And I really felt like it was easier for me to go to a screen and feel something instead of interacting with people in my real life. And so I began to feel really lonely and isolated from other people. So did that keep you from engaging romantically and sexually with other people as well? Did you, Or did it kind of spur the desire to not only be experiencing orgasm, but having sex with another person? It did spur the desire. There were, you know, I had a long running list of things that I couldn't wait to do in real life. Um, but I did feel like it got in the way of my friendships. You know, it's like I could always find a boyfriend. I always found like that was really easy. And I could, you know, have sex with him and we could watch porn together. And it was all. But 
my priorities were always really focused on sex. But when it came to cultivating other kind of relationships or even thinking about, you know, hobbies or, you know, career-wise, you know, school, like other interests just weren't as important as getting off and having sex. That just became my main driving force in life. So it's what you were thinking about no matter what you were doing. Would you say you had a difficult time concentrating? Were you constantly, would you slip away from other activities to be able to get off? Definitely. Yeah. That's a big sign, isn't it? Right. It just turned into a big obsession for me. Yeah. I know you have a a piece from your book. If you wouldn't mind reading it, I think it's really powerful and really illustrates the kind of depth of of where this addiction went to. Sure. This This guy I kind of know named Clay, who has a neck tattoo and sells arty photographs to tourists, is on top of me and he's not wearing a condom. I don't care. I'm completely sober. He's not. I'm not sure what time it is. It is so dark outside that I can barely see Clay's neck tattoo, his condomless dick, or his mouth full of crooked teeth. I hear him grunting. I feel his body's weight, his six-foot-eight frame on my five-foot-two, and I know he's almost finished. I'm too tired to have an orgasm, so I wait for the inevitable end. It's not that I don't enjoy this. Enjoy is not big enough a word. I have come to crave these nights with Clay. Sometimes he calls during the day and we make plans to go out for drinks, never dinner, because what would we talk about? But then I don't hear from him until the middle of the night when he's drunk or high and knocking at my front door. I don't care. I can't even picture him in a bar ordering drinks, sliding dollar bills over to the bartender or making conversation with me fully clothed. It's true that I met him in a bar many months before, so I must have seen these things, but I was so drunk and heartbroken from my last breakup that I'm not sure exactly how that night went and what things he said to get me to swallow his cum. He called me in the morning, and even though we made plans that I knew we wouldn't keep, I got dressed anyway and put on my mascara and took a small swig of the vodka I keep in the freezer to prepare myself for an awkward date, imagining the questions we'll trudge through out of politeness until the drinks we've ordered make us courageous enough to suggest the next move to someone's bed, likely mine. After the time we'd chosen to meet had long passed, I wiped off my makeup, slipped on my pajamas, and fell asleep. Sometimes he shows up in the middle of the night, sometimes he doesn't. Either way, I won't get another call for a few days or a week until he's bored and horny and we play this game again. Tonight, when I heard him knocking, I woke up straight away, but I stayed in bed a little longer than usual. For a fleeting moment, I considered that letting him in might not be the best thing for me, which isn't so much of an aha moment, but the usual common sense that I choose to ignore. I thought about the sensation of his hips against mine, his heavy breath on my neck, the fullness that sex gives me like having feasted on a hearty meal. But I also thought about the immediate emptiness that follows my nights with him or men like him. I weighed the options like a sensible person. I did the expected. I took off my pajamas, opened the door naked, and led him back to my bedroom. He turns me over, which is his favorite way to finish. My eyes, fully adjusted to the darkness, now focus on the dent forming between my headboard and the wall. I think about spackling. Then I see my reflection just above that in the large mirror with a rattan frame that hangs above the bed. I hold eye contact with myself while he fucks me, slipping into some sort of twisted meditation. I'm someone else, a queen or a goddess. He is just some lowly subject I use for fun. There are guards in armor waiting outside my door and maidens who will bathe me and rub me with sweet-smelling oils before putting me to bed. But when Clay pulls out, he flips my body back over like a rag doll and comes all over my tits and stomach so a pool forms on my belly button and rolls out onto the bedspread. 
Afterward, we lie there, our elbows touching. I am less sleepy than I was when I open the door so the awkwardness sets in fast. He asks how my day was, and then I wait in desperate anticipation for the call you tomorrow or see you in a few days, which may or may not be true. I don't care. I dread the nights when he tries at intimacy, holds me in the sweaty crook of his arm for a few minutes before he retreats to the farthest corner of the bed to sleep while I lie there for hours, unable to sleep beside a stranger. Finally, he feeds me his lines and gets dressed and goes, and I give myself two orgasms in the wet spot of the bed, once to a three-minute clip of a teenage cheerleader fucking her stepdad on the kitchen counter while her mom showers upstairs, and then again to the thought of what a miserable slut I am to allow a guy like Clay to use me for sex. There's nothing unique about this singular moment in bed with Clay. I can reach into my arsenal of memories and easily pick out another story just like it, sometimes not even including a man. Because what I got from Clay was more than just his penis inside of me. What I got was an elaborate mix of shame and sexual excitement I had come to depend on since I was 12 years old. And my methods of getting this only became darker and more intense so that it wreaked havoc on all aspects of my life until I became a shell of a person isolated on a path to certain destruction. With Clay gone and my two orgasms over, I steep in the afterglow of having gotten what I needed, and by now I'm too exhausted to consider answering the overwhelming question echoing inside of me where he and the cheerleader and the stepdad just were. Why am I doing this? What I block out of my mind because it doesn't fit the sad story I'm devising in my head is that I'm using Clay too. He's probably caught up in the same emptiness I am, desperately filling it with any warm body available. For what little conversation we have, Clay and I are actually quite similar, and we could probably have a genuine connection if we talked about these things. But we don't talk about these things because, well, it isn't sexy. I'd rather stick with the one thing that always manages to get me off. I'm bad, bad, bad. So powerful and so visceral, and I always feel like I'm watching it on, it could be a a stage piece. Mm. It's really beautiful. At that time, did you have a vision for your life? Were you able to think ahead and see or have any dreams or aspirations? I wanted to travel more. I had already traveled at that point, but I'd always wanted to have a really adventurous life. And I had always pictured lots of boyfriends and lots of exciting experiences. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to have all these exciting things and then write about them and just to feel anything that I could feel in life. I wanted to just hoard experience. Um, But I felt really stuck. I felt like I kept reliving the same sad story over and over. And I felt so lonely all the time. And um, that's when I knew, I mean, I had known for a long time that I wasn't happy and I was stuck, but I just didn't know what to do about it or how to climb out. And you did end up traveling quite a bit and obviously became a writer. Did you anticipate once you started writing that this would be your first book or that even you would write about it? No, definitely not. I I thought I might write about relationships and I would write about travel, but something as confronting as this addiction, I never thought I this would be the first thing. You know, I mean, it seemed like something I wanted to hide for a really long time, so then to bring it out into the into the open like this, it hadn't occurred to me and I don't think it would have until I was ready to face it and deal with it and change. Could you speak to that that awareness of really recognizing that you you had an addiction that you were dealing with because you talk about going to the sex addicts anonymous 
meeting and like the first one you went to, there was sort of a disconnect for you between the, everybody else. And it was very different by the time you went back. Yeah, I don't think with addiction, at least for me in sex addiction, it's not something that you just realize one day and now the door is open, let's change. You know, it was a really gradual progression of a series of realizations. And I think the biggest thing for me was throughout my 20s, I had just sabotaged so many relationships and friendships as well, you know, romantic and otherwise. And um, But there was one relationship in particular that I felt was the closest I'd come to love and to intimacy, but it, I wasn't there yet. And it was otherwise really healthy, but I didn't feel like I deserved that in my life. And so I messed it up and I ended up, you know, leaving a good relationship for a relationship with a man who made me feel really used and and didn't value me very much. And so I didn't value myself very much. And I just thought that was quite sad. And so I really wanted to change. You had a wonderful review in the New York Times today, which I thought was spot on. And the writer talked about her own acceptance of, I think, porn addiction is what she was talking about, but that it was a legitimate, valid thing. And I know it's controversial. and We've talked about this a, a bit before uh, at your Book Soup event. I do think that a lot of people don't want to see the addiction because they feel like it's really wrapped up in sex negativity or censorship, which is the opposite of everything that you stand for. You're very open-minded. You don't want the internet to change. So how do you react to people when they say, oh, but that's not even a real thing. It's You can't be addicted to sex or to porn. Yeah, I think that that's that's a big disservice to people who are suffering and who identify as addicts. It's a hard thing to come forward and want to face your problems and to say to somebody, well, you know, that's not a real thing and not offer an alternative solution to that. I think that's really sad because then people don't feel like their pain is valid and they don't feel like there's a community of support that they can turn to. And so they end up just shutting down and feeling more ashamed than they already do. And my intention with the book is not to be sex negative. You know, I don't want to say that porn is inherently bad, that you shouldn't experiment with sex. You know, I am a very open-minded, experimental sexual person. I still watch porn, but I don't want to betray the people that I love. I don't want to cut off intimacy from other people. I don't want to lie. I don't want to spend hours of my day watching porn. I wanted to find a healthy balance with that. And I do think that people can have open and experimental sex lives and even watch porn. And that's not necessarily bad. It's good to question your motives and to look at the decisions you're making and why you're making them and just to become more aware and ask yourself, are you happy or not? Beautiful. Yeah, it reminds me of eating disorders a little bit because they had no diagnostic label for a very long time. And so people were disbelieved. And you also don't give up food or eating, right? And also <laughs> don't have to have this neutral, boring relationship with food, you know, to heal. And I, I think it's so validating to have a story like yours where people can say, oh my gosh. And people have been saying, I know a lot <laughs> to you, that they relate to your experience. What does that feel like when somebody reviews your book or sends you a message and says, oh my goodness, this is me? It feels great, you know, because when I was in the midst of my addiction, 
I really wished that there had been somebody else speaking about this. I felt so alone and more broken than everybody else so that I just didn't feel like I can come to other people and just be my real self and be vulnerable with other people. I had a lot of um, secrecy. I hid a lot and I didn't connect with other people as much. And when people reach out to me and say that they felt this way, not only do I feel like I'm making a contribution that helps people feel less alone, but I also feel less alone as a result just hearing from them. And suddenly we have this connection where there used to be a wall up between us. And I think that's a really beautiful and important thing. It's so hard when you're struggling with something and don't know that anybody else is or that you can talk to anyone. I think the secrecy itself becomes almost an illness, right? Yes. There's this, it's what shame does to a lot of people. We actually received a question from a listener that relates to the topic of, of shame and also porn. And it's It's a really important question from Beverly, who wrote this. I recently discovered child porn on my husband's computer, a lot of it. I'm shocked and horrified and don't know what to do. I asked our resident expert, Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com to weigh in for you, Beverly. And here's what she had to say. Beverly, I can only just sort of start by saying I have the utmost... uh, empathy and compassion uh, for what you must be going through. You know, there are different ways in which we can sometimes feel blindsided um, by our partners and, you know, you know, addiction, infidelity, uh, and certainly discovering child porn on your husband's computer is one of them. Um, because it really, I can imagine, calls into question so much of your own reality and you know, what does that mean? What does your own intimate sex life look like? Um, you know, do you have children? Are, you know, are you concerned in any way about whether or not, and I think this is an important one, you know, there's a difference between fantasy and that which turns us on and um, and and when someone's actually uh, acted out on those fantasies and, and what would be defined as pedophilia. So, um, you know, one thing I want to make clear and is I would sort of say, walk, run, don't walk, to find a therapist, a therapist ideally who might have some experience um, in childhood pornography or pedophilia, just so that, first of all and foremost, it's certainly about understanding both the law, but also uh, helping you make sense of, and how do you bring this up in in, in, um, in your relationship, and, and what are those next steps? Um, because, you know, the reality is that in, in most states, um, and jurisdictions, even just possessing, uh, child pornography is a a federal and often federal and state offense, but also a felony. And so there's so much that goes into that. And it's certainly true that, you know, sometimes it might be unwittingly that many sites have cookies, um, to a browser history, which may contain child pornography content that was sort of hidden on the page. And yet that cookie can track that identity. Um, and it's also true that, uh, as more and more we're seeing, uh, sort of hacking attacks that it's not uncommon. Someone else may sort of take control of someone's computer in a sense, sort of through the back door and use it to find, download and view child porn without anyone's knowledge, which could be either to frame someone or to hide their identity. So I guess as a part of me, it's like 
first of all, it's really understanding, uh, you know, I'm struck by the fact that it feels like a lot. So again, with this, in any, is there any possible way that this was without his uh, intention or knowledge and or what feels probably more likely true, helping to understand and what about this is a turn on and is he aware of the implications and the consequences? Um, you know, I, I can certainly say that uh, more recently, um, there are several states that have ruled that a person can be convicted of possessing child pornography based on just merely be, sort of viewing those pornographic images. I can only say as I started that I have the utmost empathy um, for all that you might be thinking, feeling, going through in the roller coaster of emotions, but that uh, ultimately it's it's to make sense of and help get your get your husband help and I think and I imagine both of you as a couple help that certainly you are not alone you're not the first couple to be in the circumstance um, and how to sort of reach out and get the help through um, both providers who have this area of specialization but as well as community others who uh, wives or partners of convicted what what might lead to a conviction of um, for having child pornography. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. That was very informative. And Beverly, I echo what Megan said about getting the support that you need. I, I really hope that things work out for the best. Erica, I think it really is important that people know that there is help available and healing is possible. Would you speak to some of the most powerful steps that helped you begin the healing process? One of the things I wanted to make clear in my book is that there isn't one way out of sex and porn addiction or any addiction, really. And for me, it was really important to try a lot of different methods to see which one worked for me. I think some of the most powerful ones were sex and love addicts anonymous meetings, I think are wonderful for finding a community of people that you can speak to and be vulnerable with and people will accept you and listen to you and provide that space for you. I think that there's nothing more helpful for something um, that produces a lot of shame like sex addiction than having people to talk to and reveal those things to. And um, I found that, that that was really helpful. I also did a lot of yoga and meditation abroad. I went to Bali and Thailand and I thought, you know, Despite whether you think of yourself as a flexible person or not, I think that those can provide really wonderful opportunities to just kind of take note of what's happening in your mind and slow down a bit and say, oh, God, that's what I think about, you know, and and to just become more aware. And I think that that was really helpful. And writing this book and writing essays about this topic, and that was another way, just like in the sex addicts meetings, it was another way for me to connect with other people and to engage in a conversation that I wouldn't have otherwise had in my normal everyday situations. You know, it's like you don't just show up at a dinner party and say, hey, I'm a sex addict and mm -hmm. I binge on porn for five hours a day. It's much more um, comforting to be able to connect with other people in a way that's maybe less confronting than, you know, a dinner party. But yeah, writing about it, yoga, meditation and 12 step meetings. I think those are great places to start. Was it challenging to be so honest and open in your writing or did you have a sense of protection because of the fact that you weren't actually speaking to someone in the moment. So you could edit later. Did you let it all go and just 
out or did you have to kind of overcome some, oh my God, I'm talking about this? Yeah, a lot of people have asked, was it really hard to be that brave and honest? And uh, I would say no, not the writing it, because yeah, you it's just you and you know a piece of paper or a computer screen. But publishing it, that's a different, you know, more confronting thing is like, okay. And then all of a sudden it gets shared on social media. It's like, okay, now all of these people have seen all of my deepest, darkest secrets and now what? But I think it's really beautiful to put yourself in the situation of now what? Because then more often than not, you know, people don't run away or people don't criticize and judge. More often than not, they come and say, oh, I feel that way too. Thank you for saying that. I think that's really nice. You speak very openly now on social media. You share articles that you are quoted in, that you have written. You are very open, obviously, about all these experiences. Do you remember the first time that you spoke about it online to your, you know, your Facebook friends, for example. What was that like? <laughs> yeah, Facebook was the last place that I was as open as I have. Twitter was usually my, you know, promotional tool for my essays. Um, what was my first? I think it was when I got the book deal, and I thought, okay, well, now this is a bigger platform. People are certain my parents, you know, because I'm friends with my parents on Facebook, and that was always the last fear: is like, what are my parents going to think? Um, and not so much what are they going to think of me and like not be proud of me or feel ashamed, but more are they going to feel like I'm blaming them? Are they going to feel like they've done something wrong? That was always my biggest concern, and I didn't want to hurt them. And I thought that I really wanted to be really careful and um, not place blame on them or on anyone else that I mentioned. And I don't think that you have at all. The impression that I got was that you have a lot of respect for your family. There's a lot of love in your family. What were the first conversations like with your parents? Was it once the book was happening or had you already kind of confided a little bit? Once the book was happening, then they went back and read some of the essays. Um, and, you know, it was a little bit awkward. I'm not going to lie. It was a bit awkward at the beginning. But then we got through it. And I think that they know that writing this and writing on this topic was really um, a useful tool and a healing tool for me. And I don't think any parent would be upset that their child wants to heal in any way that's available to them. They must be really proud, too, to see people's responses to it, because it does seem, whether this was a goal of yours or not, that it's also activism. Does it feel that way to you? It does. Yeah, it, it feels that way when I receive messages from other people who are really glad and they've been struggling and, and feeling really alone, especially when I hear from women who have never talked about these things with anybody, or, and especially young. You know, I've received messages from teenage girls um, who just would never have brought this to anybody, and they really feel like they have a reference point now. Yeah, and your writing is so personal that I think it sets up a sense of trust because if you can share so much, then they can probably trust you with their secrets. Right. There's more of that that wise big sister feeling, I bet, for a teenager to go, oh, here's somebody who gets it, yeah. who's not going to judge me, who might just listen. So you break a lot of taboos in your story, in your own experience that I think are so important to be speaking about. It's one of the reasons I think that was so hard for me to find any females who would speak about their challenges with porn or sex addiction as soon as I knew that that men were struggling with it, I knew for sure, you know, women have to be too. And there were a few people who did reach out to me privately and didn't want to speak about it. And I completely respect that. 
I wonder what other taboos are important for you to break. I know there are many, but especially in regard to female sexuality, women's pleasure, what are some of the biggest stereotypes that kind of get under your skin? One of the taboos that a lot of women don't talk about is watching hardcore porn. Um, you know, the kind of some of the kind of porn I used to watch had had a lot of slapping and choking. And I remember watching women getting walked around on leashes and just feeling really disgusted with myself and afraid of other people judging me. And for a long time, even as I was writing the book, I thought that watching that kind of stuff was a byproduct of having grown desensitized to a lot of the milder porn, and now I am at this really extreme porn. Then I found this really interesting um, statistic from Pornhub that said that women are 113% more likely to watch hardcore porn. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting, but nobody's talking about it, you know? And I'm not criticizing that kind of porn. I think that, you know, if that's what you enjoy, I think desire is complex. And as long as there's two consenting adults, you know, go for it. Um, but I do think it's it's interesting and that we should be talking about it because if women are watching this sort of thing and feeling as disgusted as I felt and that no other women are watching it, then that just leads to more shame. And I'm really anti-shame you know, more than I'm anti, you know, I'm not anti-hardcore porn. I'm much more anti-shame. Um, and I really love to open the conversation a bit more. Yes, the conversations are so important, especially because shame is so insidious and can lead to many problems in addition to or Maybe they don't end up feeling addicted to pornography or having a sex addiction, but you could end up with other kinds of addictions or other self-harming behaviors. And I think all of that is really, really important to to sort through. And I think so often it's the judgment that we're concerned about from other people. Oh, if you like that, then you must have been abused, for example. Right. Is that a reaction that you have got gotten simply for your own experience? Have people assumed that you did not grow up in a loving household? Certainly. I think that's the common narrative we play with sex addiction, especially when it comes to a woman. If we hear that she's an addict, well, then somebody must have molested her when she was a child. And it was really important for me to show that sex addiction and porn addiction can start anywhere, even under normal, happy, you know, childhoods. I felt I was in a two-person family home. Um, loving parents. I felt completely supported and taken care of. But, you know, these things can manifest from under any circumstances. And it was really important for me to share that. I've even found that people assume that if a woman desires sex more than however much people think is okay <laughs> or natural, <laughs> like, like if it's more than, I don't know, if, if you have a relatively high sex drive, which is a weird term to even say because there should really be no like levels. <laughs> it's not like if you desire it this often, then you are normal. But if you desire sex, for example, more than a male partner, then, oh, for sure you went through some traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean anything other than that you desire sex and that's not bad. Yeah. And I don't think we'll ever get over those kind of misconceptions unless we talk about it more. It's so true. It's so true. Masturbation is another big one, I feel like, that I remember learning that masturbation is a sin, totally wrong, gets you into hell, but guys do it anyway. Yeah. Do you remember <laughs> learning anything about masturbation or was it just like it just felt wrong because it was secret? 
The earliest memory I have of somebody talking about it openly at school was a nun. I went to a Catholic high school and um, a nun came. We came into the room and the nun had written masturbation on the board. And I remember everyone laughing and giggling and feeling very uncomfortable. And she, in a very serious tone, said, this is something that you may be interested in and it's normal to be interested, but you can take it too far and start losing interest in your friends and staying home all day and losing it, you know, interest in God. And it all sounded really scary and horrible. And then she changed the subject right away because it obviously made her feel uncomfortable as well. And there was no real discussion of it other than this like dire warning. I have <laughs> wondered off and on throughout the years if nuns masturbate. I'm sure some do and some don't. But I did find there was a woman, a nun, who wrote about – she talked about masturbation in a positive light in something she wrote and, of course, attacked for it. Oh, wow. But uh, that's so interesting because you started out – I was like, oh, she s- said something positive. It's <laughs> no. normal to think about. But look out. Yeah. Your whole the life was will disappear. <laughs> I mean, the history of masturbation, which I studied a lot for my forthcoming Girl Boner book – could be a thriller. It is so scary. <laughs> I mean, it's scary now how much shame there is, but it's been blamed for everything. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> Man. So how have your loved ones, friends reacted to the book? And I know, I know you've gotten a lot of support. Have people that you know confided in you and said, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't realize that this was happening yeah. to you too. I have, you know, people in um, people I went to high school with. I mean, people I haven't talked to in years have come out and said, "Oh, I had no idea you felt this way." And then, of course, they have a perception of me that was inaccurate, you know. And and you know, we all assume things about other people and keep things very surface level, and sometimes are too scared to go deep with people and be truly vulnerable. And so, I think that this has been a great way for me to connect with people on a real level, and it's so refreshing to be able to talk about. These these kind of issues uh, when you've been, you know, alone and silenced for so long. Totally. And in a world that's so curated online and people sharing the surfacey things, which I get, you know, it's not like we put pictures on our our living room walls of our worst moments. <laughs> like people come over for dinner. There's an album of the embarrassing times you didn't wear makeup or whatever. But it it does take it to this whole new level. There's all this pressure to measure up. And I can only imagine the pressure, especially on, I think, young girls to measure up and to look a certain way. And I read this one study that said on average in this one particular group of people that they studied, that teenage girls were spending two hours getting ready in the morning Mm -hmm. to take a perfect selfie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's, there's just so many more complexities. And again, it's, it's missing conversations. It's not like we need to go, oh, well, let's get rid of Instagram then. It's no, it's, yeah, let's talk about this. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that we are in a moment of great change. I feel like there are so many women who are coming forward now with their stories. And even on Instagram, you'll have these people who are being really vulnerable and, you know, sharing the selfies that are much messier and real. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. And I'm really hopeful that things are changing for the better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's huge hope to be had for sure. So you ended your book with a really beautiful sexual experience. Why was that important to you to end with with a positive, very pleasurable sexual experience? I really wanted to show that 
My mission wasn't to denounce my sexuality. My mission was to embrace my sexuality and to not feel ashamed anymore. And I didn't want, at the early stages of my recovery, I thought that I had to be a certain way in order to be in recovery. I thought I had to never watch porn again. I had to be in a strictly monogamous relationship. And I did that for a while. And, you know, it was nice to take a break from porn because I was able to really deal with the stuff that I'd been escaping from in a long time. But then it started to feel inauthentic and like I was cutting off a part of myself. And it just didn't feel right. It didn't fit. And so I started to take tiny steps towards a more open-minded um, sexual life. And I found that I'm much happier. And yeah, I ended up experimenting with a woman in Thailand with my husband. And I remember after really enjoying it at the time, but then afterward, waiting for the shame to come flooding my system again and to remind me that this is not something that's healthy and I shouldn't be doing this. And I just didn't feel it anymore. I ended up feeling really free and comfortable with it and more like myself. And I liked that feeling. <laughs> chills. That's beautiful. Beautiful that you could get to that place. And that must have been really emotional. That yeah. discovery of, oh my gosh, I don't feel ashamed. Yeah. And just liberating. Do you still struggle with the shame? Is it something that you have to work through continually? Or did you kind of get to a place where it's not much of an issue? It still is from time to time. And I think that just comes with being a human being. You know, of course, I'm going to be triggered. Of course, worry is going to come up, self-consciousness and shame. And the only difference now is that I don't allow myself to escape anymore. I face those feelings. I become friendly with those feelings. And I realize that, you know, it doesn't have to stay that way. I can change and those feelings will pass. I love that you don't have the approach of, Let's not have these feelings. How can I get rid of these horrible feelings? Because <laughs> really a lot of times addictions stem from that too, right? You don't have any other outlet for these feelings that you're just stuffing somewhere. Exactly. And just acknowledging them. And it took me a long time. It's still something I work on. But to get to that place, and I feel like meditation and those kinds of practices have helped me with that. Mm -hmm. Has mindfulness been part of that for you, the non-judgment? Yeah, meditation, you know, yoga, which is just a moving meditation, anything that will allow you to sit with those thoughts and realize that they're not going to kill you in the end. It's much healthier. They will pass. Um, and just to be kinder to yourself and more compassionate. What would you say is if you could bring it down to one message? And I know that there are so many takeaways in your book. And certainly, depending on a person's experience, they might find all different kinds of treasures and messages. But for you personally, if there's one message that's particularly close to your heart, what would you say it is? You are worthy of desire. I think that's a big one for me. Yeah. And if I can add a second one, tell your secrets. Please. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that is a great one. Yeah. Yeah. And if not on a, a stage or into a microphone or into a book somewhere. Right. I mean, even if it's writing it down on a piece of paper that nobody is going to read, just become friendly with your dark side, mm. with your shadowy side. Um, and you'll realize that it's not so bad. You know, people won't run away from you. They just might come closer. Have your relationships changed the nature of your relationships? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm much more connected to people than I ever was in the past. And that's, you know, that's an ongoing effort as well. Um, 
but I don't have this desire to keep things really superficial and to pretend and perform. It just is not enriching. That's so freeing. Has it seeped into other areas of your life? And can you name one in particular? Do you feel like not having the same sort of issues or having worked through many of these things, do you feel like you're more authentic, say, in the way you dress or the way you approach (laughs) shopping or I don't know? Are there other applications that you find freer? Oh, just the way that I function with people on a day-to-day level. I think that's been the biggest change for me. Have your family members noticed that in you, the shift? I don't know. I think so. I would imagine that they would have. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. So what's next for you? I know you're very busy with this book, and it's doing so well. I saw it was on a Shonda Rhimes list of books. Yeah. Amazing. That was really exciting. You were interviewed by Megan (laughs) Kelly. You've been getting wonderful reviews, and it's so well-deserved. Are you already thinking about your next book? I have a few ideas I'm bouncing around, but nothing I've I've really committed to. Yeah, I, I'm mostly just focusing on pushing this book and then just being a good mom since I have a baby at home. <laughs> That's taking up a lot of my time. She's so adorable. <laughs> and what advice would you give somebody who is struggling in similar ways that you have? I would say reach out and find somebody to help. I think that having somebody to talk to, whether you find that in a romantic relationship or a friend or a family member or a 12-step meeting, I think that there are a lot of resources available for you to reveal yourself and be real with um, and to go for it and to not be afraid of facing your issues. I love what you said earlier about trying many different things because I imagine once you do take the initiative to work through these issues, that it could be really disheartening if you try. And the first thing you do is like, that did not help me at all. Yeah. I think it's important to try a lot of different things. And sometimes, you know, I think we're so results oriented. And sometimes the process is the most important thing. The intention is the most important thing. And that should be your driving force. Instead of like, okay, I tried this thing. Am I changed now? It's like, just go with it. Move with it and you'll find your way. Yeah. We don't need these measurable results. I feel like so often progress, you don't even see it till in hindsight. Mm -hmm. that you actually are progressing and it might feel rocky or you might feel like it's not really noticeable and then all of a sudden you might look back and go, wait a minute. (laughs) Kind of like your experience of I don't feel shame. It's like, oh, look at all of those many, many, many steps and some of those growth pieces might have felt really tiny. Yeah, it's not a straight line, you know. It's a windy road to recovery and that's certainly the way it was for me. So tell everyone where they can find you online, buy your book, and support what you're doing. So Getting Off is the name of my book. It's um, through Simon & Schuster. You can find me at ericagarza.com. I'm Twitter slash Erica D. Garza. And I'd love to connect with anyone. Beautiful. Thank you so much again for being here and for your voice. I'm just so grateful that you exist. (laughs) Thank you, August. If you're enjoying Girl Bonner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and leave us a quick little note while you're there. I would so appreciate it. And you will get an episode every week. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.